you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. LAist Studios is so happy to partner with the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures to team up for a multi-season audio series examining stories of our cinematic history. Jacqueline Stewart is director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures and a MacArthur Fellow, and she hosts the series. The second season is entitled Close Up on Casting, the hidden role of casting in film history, and we're pleased to have with us Jacqueline Stewart. Jacqueline, great to have you back with us on Film Week. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So let's talk uh, about uh, three episodes that are out to this point. The first, which is already available to listen to at LAist.com and wherever people get their podcasts, is about the casting of the Alfred Hitchcock film Rebecca, that 1940 classic. What was what was the uh, the casting battle that took place over Rebecca? Yes. Well, one of the things that we feature in our performance gallery at the museum is a set of screen tests by four actresses who were up for the role of the unnamed leading lady or secondary lady uh, for Rebecca. Vivian Lee was up for the role, Ann Baxter, Margaret Sullivan, and Joan Fontaine, who ended up getting the role. And what we talk about there and what we expand on in the in the podcast is the way in which David O. Selznick, the producer of the film, uh, was really undecided about what direction to take. And uh, and Alfred Hitchcock felt that Joan Fontaine was the right person for the role. Um, so they really went back and forth quite a bit in making a decision. And then mixed into that, Laurence Olivier, uh, who plays the leading man, he was uh, married <laughs> to um, Vivian Lee at the time and wanted her to have the role and was quite hostile toward Joan Fontaine as they were shooting. So thinking about these very powerful, important male figures in Hollywood history and how they could have such a strong role in determining what kinds of opportunities were available to women and, and what those experiences were like for women on set seemed like something we should really explore more deeply. That sounds fascinating. And Lee is coming off the huge success of Gone with the Wind just a year earlier, right? That's right. Yes. And if you think about, for those who haven't seen Rebecca, you should definitely see it because it's a, a beautifully shot film and it's a really haunting film about a young woman who marries a, a, a really fabulously wealthy man and goes to his estate and the marks of his previous wife, Rebecca, are everywhere. So much so that the uh, the new wife, we never even learn her name. <laughs> She's very... Um, overshadowed by the legacy of uh, of Rebecca. And one of the things that's really hard to imagine is that after playing such a headstrong character like Scarlett O'Hara, could Vivian Lee really fit the role of this meek, unnamed character? It really, you know, in retrospect to me, seems like the right move not to cast her. Um, but one can certainly understand how somebody like Laurence Olivier would have a, a different view. And actually what this opens up is the whole concept of 
the the lack of range that actors at the time really had during the classic Hollywood period. And uh, Joan Fontaine is Oscar nominated for Best Actress for Rebecca and then comes back the very next year in Hitchcock's Suspicion with Cary Grant and wins Best Actress for her performance in Suspicion. So her being cast in Rebecca, huge for her career. Absolutely. It really feels like a stepping stone toward that Oscar win. It's a similarly meek kind of character. Um, And as an inexperienced actress at the time, you know, she's the younger sister of Olivia de Havilland um, and really had to try to find her footing in Hollywood. And she did that very quickly through being cast as Rebecca. Pardon me. Yeah. Cast in Rebecca. (laughs) That's right. And uh, Fontaine, who lived at the age of 96, I think it was. uh, And then uh, her her, uh, sister, Olivia de Havilland, who we lost just recently, uh, centenarian uh, and also much honored actor. We're talking with the chief artistic and programming officer for the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures here in Los Angeles, Jacqueline Stewart. She oversees the museum curatorial, education, public engagement, the film programming publications, and she is the host of the LAist original series, the Academy Museum Podcast. She's talking with us about the second season, which focuses on casting and the emergence of casting. And, and we should talk, Jacqueline, before we move on to the story of Noble Johnson from the second episode of the season. What, what is it that propels the casting director to such prominence? in Hollywood? Well, this is one of the questions that we're exploring in the podcast this season. It's not just what propels the casting director to such an important role, but also um, why is it that casting directors don't get the same kind of attention um, or or how the, the craft of casting doesn't really seem to be understood as thoroughly as some of the other areas in filmmaking? Um, it's fascinating to me because I've been a film scholar. I was, you know, a student of film history before becoming a professor, and yet I don't think I ever learned about in a class or taught what casting directors do. And when you really think about it, you recognize how essential the work of a casting director is. So one reason we start the season looking at the classic Hollywood era in a film like. Rebecca is because during the heyday of the Hollywood studio system, there was no job casting director. That wasn't a profession yet. Um, you know, the the producers, the studio heads would make the decisions largely based on a kind of typecasting. You're an ingenue, you're a leading man, you're a character actor, you're a comedian, and so on. Uh, and it wasn't until the breakdown of the studio system, when you get into the 1950s and 1960s, that different kinds of possibilities open up for actors so that they can show their range, um, have more agency in the types of roles that they want to take. Um, And casting director is a profession that's really attuned to spotting talent and spotting opportunities that maybe directors uh, had not thought about when they're, or even screenwriters 
may have thought about when they write those physical descriptions of a character. The second episode on typecasting in the studio system looks at the case of Noble Johnson, the first African-American movie star who created roles for himself, some of the earliest black-produced films made for black moviegoers. But uh, he was known by mainstream moviegoers for playing a variety of different races. Um, uh, Let's uh, listen to uh, this selection of uh, Noble Johnson uh, in the second episode of the series. What a Godspeed! This is Noble Johnson in the 1930 film adaptation of Moby Dick. What does he say that I can't hear? He played Queequeg, a native Pacific Islander, opposite John Barrymore as Captain Ahab. Him say you find white whale soon now. You lying to me again, Ethan? Him no. In the 1932 film, The Mummy, he played a Nubian servant of the Egyptian high priest Imhotep, played by Boris Karloff. Let the deed be done. He's ordered to kill the reincarnation of the mummy's lover, played by Zita Johan. Let me go! Let me go! Don't kill me! Comedy! Comedy! Come on, Skipper. Make him a friendly speech. That from episode two, typecasting in the studio system, the case of Noble Johnson. We're talking about Close Up on Casting, which is season two of the podcast from LAS Studios with the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, host of the podcast, Jacqueline Stewart, with us. Jacqueline, we have just a minute before we break, but Noble Johnson, uh, someone with a tremendous number of credits, credits in mainstream films, but started his own picture. And how was he able to raise the financing to do his own films? Yeah, he was co-founder of the Lincoln Motion Picture Company. And a lot of these early Black film companies would sell shares. Um, They were speaking directly to Black audiences at the time who wanted to see better representations on screen. And it took these independent filmmakers to do it. So they would gather the resources, go to some of the more affluent members of the Black community, but then regular people would invest their money because they were so invested in seeing better images. And that's what Noble Johnson committed to do uh, in the films that he made in the teens. And these would be shown at theaters like The Lincoln on Central Avenue in Los Angeles. We'll continue our conversation with Jacqueline Stewart, director and president of the Museum of Motion Pictures, when we come back in just a minute. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge.
It's Film Week on LAist 89.3 and the LAist app. Joining me, Jacqueline Stewart, who's the director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles. Uh, She's the host of the Academy and LAist Studios podcast, which is looking at casting this season. Close-up on casting is the title. We're talking about Noble Johnson, who in uh, the second episode of the series produced his own films aimed at black audiences. Were those productions financially successful, Jacqueline? Oh, my goodness. It was a really thriving industry. It was difficult because these were independent filmmakers. But the hunger was so strong among Black audiences to see images beyond uh, the kinds of servile or heavily stereotyped marginal Black characters in mainstream films, if Black characters appeared at all. And so there were hundreds of these films that were made between the 19-teens Uh, and the late 1940s. And Noble Johnson was a real innovator. He was part of the very first wave of these filmmakers, even before D.W. Griffith made The Birth of a Nation, which is a film that inspired many of these artists and activists to try to use this, this powerful medium in a positive way. He also was, um, he was gifted in a number of ways, working with animals, as a makeup artist. There were a lot of talents that he brought to his work. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Uh, he grew up in Colorado Springs. His uh, his father had taught him horsemanship. Um, he actually was a neighbor of Lon Chaney's in Colorado Springs. And Lon mm. Chaney, of course, was known as the man of a thousand faces. Um I wish we knew more about their relationship, but they came to Hollywood at around the same time. And Cheney was very well known for using makeup and a certain kind of, um, you know, physicality in his acting to transform into, say, the hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, And Noble Johnson, for his part, is fascinating because he played lots of different racial types in Hollywood films. As as we heard in that clip, yeah. Exactly. he was someone who, because of the the light skin tone he had, uh, incredibly gorgeous, his stature. He was very often cast as a, as a kind of leader, like a native chief or like, a, you know, a, a, um, uh, a kind of, you know, a protector or bodyguard, those kinds of things. And he was able to transform himself through makeup and through really agile acting. And it tells us a lot about how he was using those skills to navigate what was otherwise, you know, a very rigid racial segregation at the time. He was clearly not satisfied to be restricted to Black roles, and he used the makeup and kind of characteristic acting lane to open up more opportunities for himself. And the thing I was thinking also, Jacqueline, he's really able to project authority in in some of those roles. And for a a Black man to depict that on screen... um, very important African-Americans. Absolutely. Yes. He was, you know, statuesque. I I really see him as a precursor to Woody Strode Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the way that he commands the screen and his um, just beautiful physicality. His, his, uh, his physique is quite remarkable. And, um, and he, and you're absolutely right to point out that uh, playing a, a black man with authority or being known to audiences at the time Uh, that this was a Black actor in this role, it would have been intimidating. So he was constantly navigating 
the politics of the filmmaking community, as well as the politics and the prejudices of film audiences. We're talking with the host of the podcast series, A Close-Up on Casting, Season 2 of the series with Jacqueline Stewart, director of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. Now, the most recent episode that's at uh, takes a look at innovators in the new Hollywood, Marion Doherty and Lynn Stallmaster. Stallmaster's credits we've seen on seemingly uh, encounter number of films. Share with us some of the highlights of of this uh, third episode. Yes. Well, in the third episode, this is where we start to talk about the emergence of the role of the casting director, like casting director as a profession, post-classic Hollywood studio era. And Lynn Stallmaster and Marion Doherty are the innovators of this field. They both came out of television. Uh, Stallmaster was working in L.A. here. uh, Marion Doherty was working in New York, and they brought with them their vast knowledge of actors that also, you know, drew on their experiences and their attentiveness to the theater to really transform the possibilities of filmmaking. So one really important example in the career of Marion Doherty is um, uh, the casting of Lethal Weapon, the franchise we all know so yeah, well right now yeah. in all these casting stories. It's like impossible to imagine other people playing these roles once they're made. Yeah. But at the time, uh, the character played by Danny Glover was not written as a black character. And so when Marion Doherty suggests uh, strongly that Danny Glover should play this role, there was some, you know, pushback on that. But uh, look at the result. Um, A similar moment that we look at with Lynn Stallmaster's career is the casting of The Graduate. Uh, Benjamin, the character that was played so famously by Dustin Hoffman, sort of written as, um, you know, uh, a more sort of mainstream type, certainly not a Jewish type of character. Mm-hmm. Um, but Lynn Stallmaster, like Marion Doherty, really read a script to think about the the nuances of the character and were not restricted by the physical descriptions. And this, that was transformative for actors and for directors who could get guidance and and out-of-the-box thinking through these professionals. Coming up, episodes will take a look at 70s films, um, one of my favorite decades of, of <laughs> movies, probably because I was coming of age in that decade, but about the boundaries of film that were broken and the important role of casting there. Also a look at casting unknowns, um, obviously risk involved when casting directors uh, make those suggestions and, and make those choices. That's also so detailed casting and animation, which is huge. Uh, can you imagine Aladdin without Robin Williams, for example? <laughs> right. Uh, and so many other choices, uh, including an episode devoted to the casting of Everything Everywhere All at Once, which, Jacqueline, that film really um, wasn't just about the script, wasn't just about effects, but about the diversity of that cast. That's right, yes. And we talked to the casting director, Sarah Finn, who also cast a number of Marvel films and thinking about specifically, how do you cast an ensemble? I mean, it's one thing to think about how to identify individuals for roles, or even when you think about kind of romantic opposites, but when you're putting together a world of relationships between characters, that's a special nuance of casting. And so it's really exciting to think about how everything everywhere all at once, which swept to the last Oscars, how that cast came together through a very careful process of thinking, 
how can these artists work with each other. We're talking about the Academy Museum podcast, which is produced by LAS Studios with the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. The second season, Close Up on Casting, hosted by our guest Jacqueline Stewart, the director and president of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures with us. Casting is the focus. And uh, Jacqueline, before we conclude, I just uh, wanted to thank you for the wonderful work here. These are stories that are just... uh, very difficult to find elsewhere. Thank you for taking this on. It's it's terrific to be able to offer this at LAS.com. Thank you so much, Larry, for these kind words and for your time today. It's a joy to talk to you. We appreciate it. Jacqueline Stewart of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures and uh, the podcast a Close Up on Casting. The first three episodes are out now. You can listen to them wherever you get your podcasts or at LAS.com. For our critics on Film Week, I'm Larry Mantle. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a wonderful weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.